Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is bonus episode three, and today we are going to be talking about Cabaret from 1972. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How about you? Uh, I am hanging in there. I am stoked to be talking about this movie. We are exactly a half century removed from it coming out. So, and 50 years. Yeah, as we will get into, it's pretty topical for today for a variety of reasons. But before we get into it too much, I want to introduce our special guest, our second returning guest. You'll now be the person who's been on stream at the third most behind me and Matt. <laughs> Tammy Doyle. Hey, Tammy, how are you? Hi, Zach. Hi, Matt. I am really well, thank you. And also really excited to talk about the 50th anniversary of Cabaret. Yeah. So let's jump right into it. Let's talk a little bit about our history with this movie. And I think for both me and Tammy, it'll be history with the source material and history with the play that it's based on. This is based on a 1966 musical. But before we go, why don't we start with Matt? Because I think, Matt, you have the least amount of experience with this. So what? Yeah, uh, I've never seen the film before. um, And I have never seen the play before either. With that said, I am, you know, growing up as a kid that did a lot of, you know, choir and theater and things like that. I've heard every song in this in this play I don't even know how many times, so many, so many times. Uh, And I'm very familiar with a lot of the music. So especially, you know, the, oh, what's the song called? The the first song, Cabaret. Um, Vilcommon. Yeah. Vilcommon. Yes, Vilcommon. Very familiar with the Vilcommon song um, and heard that a lot because I'm just interested in languages. And then maybe this time I've heard many, many times in Cabaret, heard many times as well. And then I was also familiar with the film just because I knew that the performances were so highly regarded and they've shown up in so many different places that I kind of knew about Liza Minnelli and her performances, her performance particular, and then just the overall idea of the film and its uh, role within the canon of film. So it's weird for me to come into this film. I basically knew the whole plot and knew most of the music, but I had never seen it all put together as one thing before watching it this time. I was, yeah, I didn't know if you knew any of the music, but that, that makes sense. And you're familiar with the, some of the original writings that it's based on some of the Isherwood stories or no? Yeah. I'm a little bit familiar with, uh, with Isherwood as well. So, and then on top of that, I've been just this year watching a lot of films from the 1930s, a lot of the, a lot of films that were the reference material for the cinematography for this film as well. So that was a lot of deja vu of watching the film and seeing them replicate shots that are in older films, things like Morocco or things like Wings and things like that, that are then in this movie that that was very, a, a little bit surreal to see that. And learning a lot about, you know, the 
people that were specifically the actresses that were performing these that the character of Sally, uh, Sally Bowles was kind of modeled after. So a lot of the references and things I was very familiar with. But again, the the entire thing together was a new experience. Cool. And Tammy, how about you? So I the very first time I saw this movie was in the movie theater. My best friend, her mom took a group of us. We were 14 and 15. And I remember clearly hearing afterwards how her mom did not expect the movie that we saw. Mm-hmm. She was an older parent. Um, <laughs> promise you she would not have. She may have even seen it on stage. I would not be Her, surprised. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and we we were a little, you know, open mouth. And I have to say, too, I know we'll get to this, but it's also the 50th anniversary of the movie that won Best Picture, which is The Godfather. So like, yes. you know, the world is exploding, you know, as a teenager for, for us. So um, so that's what I remember about it. I hadn't seen the movie. Maybe I've seen it. I don't know if I'd seen it in between. I'm always reminded that movies were longer, um, you know, and that we all had to pay attention a little bit more. True. Mm-hmm. And um, interestingly, being older, looking back on how, what a baby Liza Minnelli looks like. And it's not just she's so young. young. She has that soft, gentle, uh, the look that he, that he wanted, mm-hmm. um, which is very cool. Also, I'm really familiar with the stage show, which different than other, um, than many other shows, as Zach knows, this show's a moving target. So I'd have to say, I think I've seen it five times and I don't think I've ever seen the exact same show. Um, the show I, and I've directed it. And some songs that I'll talk talk later if it comes up that are my favorite are not in the movie and not in earlier renditions of, um, of, of the script. So which in a way makes it kind of cool because then there isn't kind of, you know, there is a sound of music and there's sound of music. And then you sort of mess with this iconic thing that's really set in stone. And Cabaret is is not. It's weirdly more like, you know, anything goes. I mean, it shouldn't be. But I find that interesting. So uh, I love this show. And I'm really excited to talk about the film itself as we dive into it. Cool. So, yeah. So, yeah, I have, I saw this movie for the first time in college. And I, I mean, I went to school for musical theater and I knew the cast album really well. I knew Kander and Ebb's work really well, but it must have been my I guess it was my junior year I read a Bob Fosse biography and when I read that it was like oh there there's a movie of Cabaret so I guess I have to watch that movie and so I immediately watched Cabaret probably while I was reading the biography and then I watched all that jazz which is just seven years after Cabaret also directed by Bob Fosse and I had seen his the film of Pippin and mm-hmm. was pretty familiar with the film there's a film of Fosse right I didn't make that up the there's a 19 sure. there's a 1999 review yeah. of his work staged by Anne Reinking that's a bunch right. of his most famous famous numbers so I knew him as a choreographer and then the my high school where Tammy taught at our technical director at that theater was Anne Ryan King's brother. So the Fosse world is one that I was very familiar with and I knew sort of his 
choreographic vocabulary, but I hadn't seen this and hadn't seen all that jazz. And <laughs> I loved them both so much. I watched them, I think I watched them both back to back over and over again. Like I watched them both twice during that year. And then I haven't seen this movie since then. Although I have, I assistant music directed and conducted the stage show in college, my senior year. And then I music directed it maybe nine years ago and haven't seen the movie since then. That being said, and Matt already knows this, this is my top ranked movie musical of all time. And it's number 19 on my all time favorite movies lists. So, so it's interesting and we can talk about sort of how and where one would rank it. It, um, for me, it would, and I don't have such a list, but I guess I could make one. It would go on a list of movie musicals that are all source material. Because I think it's a higher bar yeah. in a film to have people start singing than it is on stage. And um, I both applaud and condemn these choices literally at the same time. The other thing that, that where this came up is that I do want to rewatch all of Fosse Burton, which I adored. And the cabaret episodes are great. I completely agree. And we'll, one, <laughs> I guess I can say it later, but yeah. So... Yeah, that's what it's worth. Also, Zach has been trying to get me to watch this movie for a long time. But honestly, I, it's one that I've wanted to watch. And uh, I wanted to watch it because I knew Zach liked it so much. But I kind of at this point, I was putting it off so we could do it for the for the podcast. So it's uh, uh, I've been saving it for, for this experience. Yeah. So that brings us into why did we choose this movie, our justification for picking this for the show. And certainly a lot of it is I'm very high on this movie. I like it a lot. I wanted to make Matt watch it. And then <laughs> it does have that confluence of this being the 50 year anniversary of the movie. But also Tammy and I are both musical theater people. So this is in our wheelhouse to talk about and to talk about the choices they made adapting this for film and some of the things that make this unique as a movie musical. Well, and also so amazing because I know I was just sort of pushing it, but it does sort of go 1932, 1972, 2022. I think it's actually yes, 1931, yes. but there's that scene yeah. that's supposed to be which means we're really dropping into three moments in history that people have written a lot about 72 and the, yeah. you know, McGovern running. And we'll talk about that, but, you know, and how, uh, again, that, that first audience would have taken, seen this. And now I think it's so right that we got some lessons that are not just Nazis are rising and I'm not believing that, but that's just so simplistic. I, mean, I think this movie is not simplistic, which is mm -hmm. like why we all are reacting yeah. so strongly to it. It's not simplistic. Bob Fosse was not a simple man. No, yeah. I, ha I had the same thoughts about this one, especially the the way that it's it, the just the time periods are so there's so many similarities and yet differences between 1932, 1972, and uh, 2022. And th this film felt so complex for me. I read a lot of 
scholarly journal articles from people about this film and the 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 way that those critics looked at this film I just felt was so incredibly off and so I don't know it's it's complex and they treat it very simplistically and I don't know I, I think it's great oh and the other thing that I did want to mention is it does have a very slight crossover I think I might have mentioned this in our birdcage episode, but with the birdcage, because of course, Robin Williams has that famous bit in the birdcage where he does all of the choreographers and one of them is Bob Fosse. So I thought it would be a nice little through line with Tammy. And one of the things that I realized while we were watching the birdcage is we know who Bob Fosse is and people who have watched Fosse Verdon know who Bob Fosse is, but I don't know that the world really remembers who he is outside of the musical theater world. And I want to give a little more, as you said, like, we're going to talk about him. He's a difficult man and a very conflicting man, but we have these few pieces of work that we get to just view of his. Well, and one, one, it did win a ton of awards, but two, it won a ton of awards because so he did something that people would often suggest you simply cannot do, which is that he was able to use the lens in the way that he uses the proscenium of the stage, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In different ways, because yeah. they're different medium, but but that, you know, that, that's where people fail. I think even really brilliant people in both, mm-hmm. in both areas going back and forth. I would have probably seen his work and also gone, ah, hey, yeah, I, I don't know if we want to give this guy millions of dollars because- you know what? And they talk about Sweet Charity being to flop. I don't think it's an awful, awful film, but he did something completely new. And I mean, I read a couple things we'll talk about that, you know, the year of Cabaret and the Godfather, both of them and film is completely different. Yep. And film goers expect different things. And it's those two movies that keep coming up for different reasons, obviously. But yeah, and the, it does have a little bit of a streaming crossover because this movie and all that jazz are both extremely highly regarded by Stanley Kubrick who we had done the episode on The Shining for. And I, he has a quote that one of them, I believe it's all that jazz, is his favorite movie of all time or the movie that he thinks is most impressive of all time. And yeah, definitely if you watch Cabaret and like it, I highly recommend checking out all that jazz. All that jazz is a masterwork as well, but it's also it's a difficult watch. <laughs> it's, it, it's not a fun one, which I guess Cabaret isn't a fun one necessarily either, but there's fun bits in it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's also really great because Joel Grey at age 90 is in a television show right now. Jeez, I didn't realize that. So we can, can we just say that of all these cast members, the fact that Joel Grey is in a television show right now is so amazing. So he's That's in the crazy. old man with John Liskow. Oh yeah, I, um, we haven't and, watched that um, one Jeff Bridges. Oh my god, and it's an amazing performance. Yeah, I mean Joel Grey, just an absolute treasure, and someone that Bob Fosse, I think they had to convince him to let him onto the film. He didn't want to keep him, which is a little difficult to imagine, but. <laughs> You know, I think he was obsessed with making things his own. Yeah. Right. He had to take Liza Minnelli. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, I guess he was supposed to have to take Joel Gray. And I think he just didn't want to do someone else's show. I mean, he didn't, but I think he 
my guess is from the little I know, like the last time I talked to him, um, <laughs> to not who he was, right? He wanted to have his right. handprint on everything. Although again, watching Fosse Burton, I just find myself going, so Gwen's eyes were on this movie. It looks like it's according to the show a lot. Yeah, that's that's something that for, certainly the Fosse biography that I read treats him as an auteur and Fosse Verdon was their whole point of view was like he wouldn't have been the person he was without Gwen Verdon as an artistic uh, sounding board for him so that that was something that was I think their central thesis of the show and also bringing the work and the person yeah. to a whole new audience. Though for what it's worth it feels like there's stories like that about every auteur every auteur yeah there's always somebody behind the work that's that they're working with so well in this case and i think when burden as his wife it's certainly shown that she's softening him and his relationship with the actors over and over again that that's where his uh, i can totally believe that that's where his downfall was was get them to do what you want but they need to come back tomorrow and shoot again Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about 1972. Talk about the year that this movie was movie was made. I know that Matt, you had had some stuff pulled that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, there was a lot that went on in 1972, and it was uh, I I just thought a lot about there's so many comparisons between now 2022 and 1972 with so many of the things that were going on there's a lot of big events that people will probably remember such as Watergate and things like that but there was an event that was really that I connected with a lot there was a lot of things going on in Chile I lived in Chile for several years Mm. um, and 1972 was kind of a pivotal year for Chile Uh, During that time period, a few years earlier, I think in 1970, was when Salvador Allende was uh, elected as president. And he was a, it was the first, I don't know how to describe this exactly, but the first government in South America that had democratically elected a, a communist government. And I don't know, I would give it kind of a small C rather than a big C there. There's, there's a lot of differences between the way they ran their government versus a lot of other places. And he got a lot of criticism from, you know, big world co- communist leaders and things like that. Uh, in 1972, the there was a huge economic do- downturn in Chile. There were f- food, food shortages and strikes. And it's mainly because they were at the time a single export economy. And the ground fell out from that economy. And part of it was just economics and part of it was pressure from the United States and things like that. By 1973, the entire entire government was overthrown in a military coup from Augusto Pinochet just a a few months after this film would come out. And so Augusto Pinochet being the fascist dictator that took over afterwards and was in power for, I can't remember the exact amount, but 20 some odd years in Chile. And I know a lot of people when I was there and living in Chile that lived through that transition and that were put into, put incarcerated and tortured and people that were taken to, uh, a friend of mine was taken to be executed by Pinochet's squads. Um, And so 
for me, when I watched this film and then made the connection of what was going on in Chile, they were right at this period, at the beginning of 1972, that would have been very similar to the what's going on in the film. The, the kind of the fascism was rising in the country, but a lot of people were not really giving it, giving it much seriousness. And then very quickly things started to fall apart in the country. So I, I connected with that a lot as I watched the film. Starting on an upper, I guess. Yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> so. no, totally okay. The So I was going to go through the history of movie musicals and sort of what happened before this and what brought us to this point. But I didn't know, Tammy, if you had anything. Um, Poetical, you mean in terms of the period? Yeah. I think I think we just can't overstate the uh, Nixon McGovern year mm-hmm. that we're mm-hmm. in. And numbers of uh, historians credit where we are now really starting in 72 with sure. that mm-hmm. yeah. with that process. And then, of course, what was going to come after. But, you know, who McGovern was, the kind of people that got behind him, that is the beginning, the very beginning of kind of the polarization, because the McGovern gang was not that centrist gang. The young people from McGovern were, uh, you know, the young people from McGovern in 1972 and were rabid and were, you know, the, the war is beginning to wind down or maybe it doesn't wind down, beginning this dwell against the war is, I think, uh, just growing. So I think that part of it, um, which is not, which is an interesting place to place cabaret, which is about people who who actually are not reacting. I mean, we'll go into what the place about, but, you know, so yeah, that's just my sort of main note is that I think that that is, that in and of itself is incredibly, incredibly important. And it's really interesting. Um, I, uh, I also, when we get to, it, I want to talk about what it was rated, but there's a really interesting, um, somebody was writing, I just wanted to look at this. Maybe I won't, maybe I won't get this, uh, that a couple of writers have really talked about how important, this movie was to its audience because of the political situation. So I know that's what we're talking about, but yeah, and of culturally, um, you know, I got to Cal in the fall of 75. And when I was a freshman, the seniors at Berkeley had been freshmen the year that the tanks rolled up, telegraphed oh, campus. So they still had, and I think that's, you know, they, they would have been, you know, prime viewing for this. Yeah. So um, so to me, you know, that's it. It's just this amazing transition time. So for sure. Yeah. There you go. And so before I go into my <laughs> brief history of movie musicals, I do want, we, Tammy, you had mentioned that this is the same year as The Godfather. And mm-hmm. as I think, most people know The Godfather would win Best Picture this year, but it did not win. Francis Ford Coppola did not win Best Director in at the Oscars this year. That was given to second-time director Bob Fosse, and I think that is just like, I mean, The Godfather is a movie that is on your shortlist for one of the greatest, most revered films in American history. And here comes this, this theater guy into, into the world of cinema. And it's just like, yeah, I'll, I'll take that Oscar for, for best director. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's the year, that's the year that he's like, he got 
Almost, right? Because he wins the Emmy for Liza with a Z, which I saw and loved. And I had that record, which I played all the time mm-hmm. um, when I was younger. And, um, and he won the Tony for Pippin. Tony that- for Pippin, yeah. And Thank all you. of them within about a two-month period. Collect yes. these three wow. Emmys. And, and should have won a Grammy, probably. I mean, in, in other years, that would have happened sometime in yeah. his life. Yeah, I mean, you know, when when as at one point my daughter used to say, when something really good would happen, she'd sort of smile and go, "Yeah, I'm gonna have to pop my head to get in the door." <laughs> you know, it's like you know, so many accolades are coming. You have to take a breath. Remember where you know who you are. And you know, I don't think he can be faulted for some arrogance. I mean, I know he had it going in, but <laughs> that's quite a bit. I mean, he gets out of the medium in which he's lived his life, directs a film directs a TV special and just slays. Yeah, uh, okay. absolutely. And from my perspective, the, I, if I were giving the award now, I think I probably would have given it to Bob Fosse for this one rather than to, to Francis Ford Coppola. For the, director, the Godfather for best picture. Uh, for, for best picture, or not, not for best picture, for best director, I'm sorry. Uh, I would probably still give The Godfather best picture just because of its place in the just the pantheon, in movies yeah yeah but the direction on this film is really really good and you know the godfather is this like huge ensemble piece with so many different people that were involved and talents that were kind of like a lot of them were kind of typecast into particular roles that they normally play anyway this is not to knock Francis Ford Coppola but I think that the direction that goes into cabaret requires a a, a bit more of a deft hand than it probably would have taken in in uh, The Godfather by comparison. We can just say that you heard it on stream it. I'm not that into The Godfather. It's, uh, it's I mean, you know, I was that yeah. same age and everyone yeah. was like, oh, and I just remember like going like, and I actually even sort of that genre was sort of, you know, interesting to me. I literally, yeah. we'll just, con- for one second, I actually think The Untouchables is a better film and I know Slay Me Now. <laughs> but totally um you know i mean in terms of the same sort of i mean it's not quite the same but so no i mean i don't think the godfather was for everyone so i totally agree yeah, yeah. totally agree with you. and we're probably a lot on the same page as far as the godfather it's a i i, I don't like it uh, i like it a lot it's a film that i really enjoy but i do think that the way it gets talked about sort of in cinema circles uh tends to be a bit overblown so I, I wanted to watch it. I haven't seen it since I was a kid and I was probably too young to watch it. Like I just didn't really, not like too young content wise, but I just didn't really get it. And so I wanted to watch it before this, but it's it's hard to squeeze in a, a three hour movie. So, <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, let's talk a little bit about movie musicals. So obviously, the first movie musical happened in 1927 when we had the advent of sound in movies. Pretty pretty difficult to have a full movie musical without that. So that was the, the jazz singer in 1927. And then the 30s was filled with sort of what people think about when they think about your old time movie musicals. That's your Top Hat, your Fred Astaire, your Ginger Rogers, going mostly through that decade and then culminating in Wizard of Oz in 1939, which uh, does have just a little connection with, with this little movie. <laughs> a small um, one, yeah. Zach, are the, are the Mickey, Rooney, Judy Garland movies, are those 30s or 40s? 
Are I they before? I believe they're 40s because okay. what I have is the 40s to 50s are all of those big MGM musicals. And that's when there are some of them that are based on Broadway plays during that time, Broadway musicals during that time, On the Town is one of those. But a lot of them, a lot of the most famous ones, Hollywood started poaching the theater directors. And so people like Irving Berlin went to the other coast. And so Irving Berlin did Easter Parade and they had uh, Mimi and St. Saint Louis and Gershwin did American in Paris. Uh, Singing in the Rain is also in that time, which is on my musicals ranking list. That one's my number two. So yeah. those, are, those are right there. And so, those are shows that are now produced on stage. They sort of retrofitted the movie musicals and were like, oh, these are popular. And now you can license Wizard of Oz to produce on stage. You can license Singing in the Rain to produce on stage, which all has its own various challenges because those movies are so iconic. And then- Well, and they're movies, so they go places. Yeah. You, yeah, mentioned, exactly. you mentioned probably my favorite movie mu musical that's not based on a stage show, which is Meet Me in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. she, she, she tears down those snowmen and they it's sing, beautiful. And, and they sing, oh my God, and I'm just dead in the water. Uh, that scene is so, I love that scene so much with the, with the snowman and stuff. That's another one yeah. I have not seen since high school or before high school. Well, can I say, this is the advent of streaming kind of messes up the fact that you just hang around on a Saturday when it's raining and you go flip, 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 and you run into Mimi in St. Louis and you run in, right? I mean, yeah. one used to, or now it'd be Turner, I guess, but those old UHS, UHF, right? Mm -hmm. the, the 36 and 22 and 44 and all those ones when you used to have a dial would just play movies. And these yeah. in the Bay Area, I'm sure up here and on the East Coast, movies from eight in the morning until midnight, you could just sit. I if my parents were gone, I'd like just make peanut butter sandwiches and watch like six movies in a day and be so proud. They'd cut them all down to like, you know, an hour, 15 minutes. <laughs> this is something I've now listened to a lot of movie podcasts because I'm watching a lot more movies in my life and I want to listen to other people talk about them. This is something that I've heard people talk about a lot. And it is something that I don't connect to at all, partly because we never, we didn't really just have the TV on in my house growing up, but also the uh, like the idea of jumping in in the middle of a movie like gives me <laughs> hives I'm just, i just like i can't it's like why would you do yeah. that why would you ruin that movie for yourself That's oh, so so yeah i think dead will tell you she's watched the end of shawshank like six times <laughs> and never the whole thing. a lot of people have that experience because a lot of people don't have my specific neuroses I think it makes sense. I also think that, I mean, I would say, well, I've always liked watching TV, but there were four of us and I was the oldest. Mm -hmm. So there were weekends because I would just as soon do that anyway, when there were plenty of little boys running around, my parents had to rein in. And um, I think that mm -hmm. is true of lost people is a weekend thing. So yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, so get us, so okay. you're exactly yep. to get us into stage shows going to film. Yes, so that, yes, exactly. That's what comes next. Our 50s to sort of mid 60s, we have all of the stage shows that then get produced as movies. And there were movies that growing up, at least going to a musical theater school, were not necessarily well regarded. They were just movies that existed. Well, a lot of them. There's your Oklahoma's, your 
South Pacific's. And then there are some that like have some of the most famous movie moments of all time, Sound of Music, which Mm -hmm. won the Academy Award, Oliver, which also won the Academy Award. But also like Forum got made into a movie, A Little Night Music in the 70s got made into a movie, right. Camelot. uh, Camelot, exactly. So it was sort of this idea of Broadway musicals are localized to this one, (laughs) whatever, 10 block radius in the in New York City, but if we can make them into movies, then they will be somewhat profitable, but also bring these to a bunch of other people. And they were critically acclaimed. They won Oscars. They were very well regarded in the industry. But all of those, I couldn't find any that were not the case. All of those are pretty much direct ports from Broadway to screen. They don't do a ton of adaptation other than adding the requisite songs so that they can get nominated for and worth an entire podcast on its own probably not this one maybe and they almost always cut the villain's song every single one i've never heard lonely room and then went oh my god this is brilliant all in sound of music it's cut in seven deadly virtues is cut from Mm -hmm. camelot they're all cut. And oh. I think that allowed, I think, them to cast uh, non-singers in those roles. Although, you know. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, um, I think the problem is that I think in a lot of those shows, there's some of the, I mean, thank God you've got to be carefully taught was not that from South Pacific. I feel like it was just a way for people to go like, oh, in musicals we sing, but really just the happy people sing, even if they sing about sad things. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's huge. Because it gets us in, and that will also that later segue into some of the changes for Cabaret, because I actually think he did the same thing, only in a different, for different reasons, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, huge. And then really quickly, I should get us through where we are in musical theater history, which I will do very fast. Musical theater history started at a basically the same time, 1927 with Showboat, and then we have the period before this, which is colloquially referred to as the golden age, even though I know Tammy very much dislikes that moniker. Uh, That's (laughs) 1943 to 1962, 1964. Yeah, 1964 ending with, you know, I guess golden, if golden, then we get into the platinum age because Sondheim comes on the scene. So, you know, we can do that. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is firmly at the beginning of what I consider to be the Sondheim age of theater. And it's where they were establishing all of the rules before this. They were figuring out what works. Like it's easy to forget if you haven't studied musical theater, but until 1943, until Oklahoma opened, there just was not a template for how to write a musical. And so that's what they were figuring out. That's what they were establishing. Oh, the big movie musical that I forgot, obviously, was West Side Story. <laughs> I did not mention that one. That's that a big one. Extremely yeah. highly regarded. Anyway, so that's the time where they're figuring all of that out. But then the 60s through the 70s through, I'd say, the mid 80s is where you get the advent of experimental theater. And if it seems like, oh my goodness, I cannot believe they wrote Cabaret in 1966, that is how I feel every single time I read this script, every single time I listen to this music. It's just like, I cannot believe they did that 
the like Sondheim hadn't even written his big shows yet. All he had done was Forum. He hadn't even done Do I Hear a Waltz. Company was four years away. Follies was five mm-hmm. years away. So I, yeah, I I think this show does not get quite enough respect in in the theatrical community for how daring it is. And I was reading the 1966 scripts today on the bus home. I was going through it. I was like, oh, I'm sure some of this stuff was not in there originally. A lot of it is. It's it's pretty astounding. I also love the idea that so so the stage show is 66. Yes, 66. And, and filler 64, mm-hmm. right? I mean that that, that 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 that's I think right. That's the same audience. Yeah. Um, which is that audience that is remembering uh, World War II very very viscerally. And that's true. Creators, I think, who are working through it and trying to figure out what to do with it and a couple of decades enough removed that you can start to make a musical that has Nazis in it. And I, right. yeah, Comedy I, being tragedy plus time. We're, we're not singing springtime for Hitler quite yet. Quite, no, yeah. Right? Now I wish I had looked up. But he's gonna write, I mean, Mel Brooks is gonna write that much sooner. I mean, if you don't take the musical, if you take the movie, sure. right? That movie, when is that movie? That movie is 70 something. Right, it's sooner than I would think, in a way. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. 1967. Well, oh, the... So the year yeah. after this. Okay, then I then I completely stand corrected. It well, some people did think that it was too early for that. Wow. And maybe only someone like Mel Brooks, with his credentials, both in his, I imagine, his Jewish community as well as the theater mm-hmm. community, could like say, look, you know, could pull it oh. off. Yeah. Wow, I totally stand corrected. I think also both on stage and screen, this is the Amer- this is the American auteur decade. Or oh, sure, yeah, right. Yeah. Early, yeah. I think it's earlier it in Europe. My film history is not as good, but earlier in Europe, but certainly on stage, I always when I'm thinking about these periods, I feel still this is like the director choreographer years when Fosse's coming up, and you're looking at these shows which are fun. Often the books are not good. I think the book Cabaret is very good, but often it's looking at Chicago. The book's only fair, you know, Pippin, the shows that are the course line, you know, that are really about the people who created them and not necessarily a script or a story. Right. There were Hal Prince shows and there were Bob Fosse shows and chorus line is a little different, but is a Michael Bennett show. And yeah. Yes, the before that you had Rodgers and Hammerstein shows and yes. you had Irving Berlin and George Gershwin yeah. shows. And yes, this is a different period. And it's probably not going to happen again. That's not the world that we live in now. And I think there are pros and cons there, but- direct- you think, I think we have gone back to that a little bit. Oh, really? Well, I guess there are like jukebox musicals that are put together by- directors oh, oh no right i think we're back to the like i think i think we go to see a flirty and aaron show i mean if you're oh yes 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 that's, yeah. yes that yeah, is, yeah, that is what i mean we i think we yeah i think we're back to story with uh i i have to say i think we're in a really great place right now or we're pre-pan and we'll be again yeah where directors are using the technological stuff to make an imprint and direct shows and writers are being pushed i would say to create good stories and good characters yeah i would say i, I would say it's a great time to be alive actually <laughs> what a time uh, to be alive 
And as, as you're saying about the auteurs in film history, this is very much the rise of the auteurs because in like the 50s, that's where you have the collapse of the studio, studio system and the auteurs come in to fill in, that, fill in that void in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's where you have Francis Ford Coppola and uh, Martin Scorsese and George Lucas and Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Spielberg and, and the kids, right? They're all boys at this point. The Very guy nice. that directed the the um the one that we the oh, one that we Kubrick. talked about uh, Kubrick, yeah, and Mission Impossible and The Untouchables. I forget his name all of a sudden. Oh, Brian De Palma. Uh, Brian oh, De Palma. Yeah. Uh, oh, right, the, they're all in the same period. Wow. Yeah, all six, and not only were they all in the same period, they were all close friends with each other, and so those six were kind of shaking up the studio system right in this decade, uh, and it was because of the collapse of the of the studios, and nobody knew how to make films anymore without the studios being around. So well, they had to figure it out. Now they teach at USC and NYU, so you know there, yeah. <laughs> there you are. Yep. Okay, we should probably keep this moving along. Let's talk about some of the people involved in this film. Matt, I know you had pulled a couple of people, so I'll let you start with yours. Yeah, so the one person that I wanted to make sure to talk about as far as the film is Jeffrey Unsworth, who does the cinematography on this film, because the cinematography in this movie is phenomenal. It's really, really good cinematography. And that's the thing that stood out to me in particular. The The music and the, the musical aspect of it was so good. But the cinematography on this film is just another level. And I don't think I've seen a movie musical that is so daring with its cinematography before this one. And he also did work on some other popular films, such as 2001, A Space Odyssey, uh, which is regarded as one of the best (laughs) cinematographic experiences. And also he did the Superman film with uh, Christopher Reeve. So, which is, you know, it's, it's easy to look back on that film and not realize how important it was for developing the, the vocabulary of of these kinds of superhero films and science fiction films and the way that they built it and they really that film is very experimental from the cinematography standpoint additionally he did a film Beckett and Murder on the Orient Express just incredible work he has two Oscars five BAFTAs he won an Oscar for this film and the, the there's so much with I just couldn't believe as I was watching this film, the way that the camera was was moving in through the theater and then uh, the way that they were interpolating all the different things alongside the music, that that stuff really blew me away with how good it was. So wanted Matt, to give a shout out to that. Matt, do you know, do cinematographers often work closely with lighting designers? Because I rarely notice lighting like I did watching this film. And everything you're saying to me only would have worked lighting wise if the cinematographer were was yeah if they were so born, if they the were cinematographer born. their department covers the cameras and the lighting so okay, those two you. things are the cinematographer covers that and okay. um, so yeah they, they, he would have been the person working with Bob Fosse that was supervising exactly how to make the lighting work. And that's, it's incredible. The, the lighting is so good in this. It's, it's it, just for the cinematography of this film, it is worth watching and beyond even all the other parts are, are excellent as well. So Tammy, I'll t- I was going to talk about Kander and Ebb and Bob Fosse and then touch on Liza Minnelli. Did you want to talk about anyone else before we get into them? 
No, I don't think so. I, I really enjoyed, I mean, one thing about watching uh, Fosse Burton, I guess I could research this, but it's seen is that they did so much filming and casting in Europe. And so many of the secondary characters, even leads were, um, were European. And I think that guy who plays Max, whose name I have somewhere, besides the fact he's devastatingly good looking. Um, <laughs> uh, I feel, I just feel yeah. like, why didn't I see him do a million other things? Because he, he, I, I had to actually stop and look at the time. He doesn't enter the film till halfway through. Yes, really and he's third far, build. Yeah. And I'm like, what about that uh, Fritz? No, is that his name? Yeah, Fritz. Yes, Fritz, that yeah. young Fritz guy, which is quite a lead. But anyway, I had that Max. The, yeah, I, I just thought he was amazing. And um, I think that Brian slash Cliff in the musical is an incredibly difficult role, actually tougher on stage just because the way it's written mm -hmm. because he's so he is the one who's watching and I think Michael York who um mm. I only kind of like he's not my major go-to guy although I did find out Chris, Christopher Isherwood was English and I've always thought he was American so that was weird for me <laughs> um I I just don't I just I mean I believed him I thought he did a great acting job I do he just doesn't pull me in so I Max agree. gets here yeah. and I'm thinking, I'm going to Africa with Max. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sure. Max, you know, yeah. if Max wants to buy me lunch, I mean, seriously, which I think is really important for that casting. I think you have to believe that. Um, yeah. And I totally did as a viewer. I mean, I really sat there and got a little giddy. He was just adorable. And um, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. So just wanted to, to bring him up. And I wanted to talk about the lighting. So that was awesome that you brought that up because, yeah, when we talk about the direction, I, I think that, again, Fosse may or may not have been sort of bullying things along. I don't know because I wasn't there, but it certainly felt like a group that worked together. So it does. Somehow they were on that same page for me. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right. Let's talk a little bit about Candor and Eb. Candor and Eb are the songwriting team who wrote the songs for this, wrote the songs for the stage show. And their songwriting team, their first show was in 1965 with Flora the Red Menace. And the, they had the visit in 2015, which is was posthumous for Fred Ebb, uh, mm -hmm. but continued writing through 2010. And I feel like I, they're one of the great songwriting teams in American musical theater history. And I think it's just a little unfortunate. I mean, people know their stuff. They're certainly well-revered in the industry, but they tend to be a little overshadowed just because they were writing in the Sondheim era and mm -hmm. Sondheim took up so much of the air and so much of the focus of the songwriting during that time. And they have a bunch of really famous songs. People probably know Chicago. The Chicago movie won Best Picture a little over a decade ago. So that's probably their most famous work that the general public would know. But they also wrote a song that if you've ever attended a baseball game in <laughs> Yankee Stadium, gets played at the end of every single game. And of course, is also extremely famous for the Frank Sinatra recording, and that is New York, New York. Oh, is, because it's from that movie with yes. Liza Minnelli. Yes, exactly. And there's also a famous Liza Minnelli, Minnelli recording. And I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think they actually have one recording that they play 
at Yankees games when they lose. I think they play the Liza Minnelli one when they lose and they play the Frank Sinatra one when they win. Sad. Unfortunately, <laughs> I haven't been to a game where the Yankees lost in a while. So I can't <laughs> That's a shame. confirm that. I try not to go to Yankee Stadium. I don't, I don't particularly enjoy it there. But I'd there say are, that if the Mariners keep winning. Okay, so far. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Oh man, I am just on cloud nine. Fortunately, they already played today. They already won, so I don't even have to be don't have to stress about, about it today. Yeah. <laughs> the so I I would urge people to go and take a look at some of Candor Neb shows, especially some of their lesser known shows, because I think like Woman of the Year and The Rink just have some really gorgeous songs in there, and they did write original music for Liza with a Z, which is came out this same year and is truly remarkable. And they did have Kiss of the Spider Woman, which is best win- best musical winner in 1993. Love that show. Yeah, really amazing score. Has Cheetah Rivera on the original cast album and the late Brent Carver, who we lost last year or maybe the year before. And it's that cast album really harkens back to a time where the cast albums just had so much personality and Cheetah and Brent Carver, people who I don't know if they'd make it on a Broadway cast album now, but they have extremely unique voices and I just love them so, so, so much. Is he not the lead in Parade? He is the the lead in Parade, parade. yes. Brent Carver's the lead Yeah, that voice is, yes, yes. Yes, that voice makes me laugh and cry and becomes a part of me. It's iconic, yeah. Yeah. There there are a couple stories that I wanted to tell about Candor and Ebb quickly. And one of them is they they had a rather unique way of writing together. I don't know if you know this, Tammy, but one Mm -hmm. of the most, one of the questions that composers, it's a joke they get asked most often is which comes first, the music or the lyrics. And Kander and Ebb, they would write together in a room with John Kander on the piano and Fred Ebb, as the stories go, jumping around on tables and them figuring out the song together and performing it. And they actually had a party trick where they would go into a room and write an original song in I believe it's under seven minutes. I should have fact-checked it, but they were they were just known for having this cohesion and having a musical language that allows their music and lyrics to gel in a way that makes it feel like they're written by the same person in the way that those, those legendary composing teams are able to do. And... Yeah, I like the fact that as uh, like, I don't know if I can necessarily, maybe you could do the sack, but I feel like I can say, oh, that's a Rodgers and Hammerstein show. Like, mm-hmm. I think if I heard a trunk show that no one heard, I would know. Maybe I'd say Learn and Low and I have to think about it. I don't think I could do that with with these guys. Yeah. So it's funny that I did read an interview with one of them once where <laughs> they asked them, how did you're famous for writing such good vamps? How did you get so good at writing vamps? And they said, probably John Kander said, Yeah, I'm not really that good at writing vamps. I just happened to write two that are extremely famous. And <laughs> one of them is the opening to this movie that dun 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 dun, dun, yeah. dun, dun, dun for Cabaret. And the other, of course, is actually 
a very similar vamp. Both of them sort of alternate between the tonic and the uh, and the fifth in the bass and have a chord for all that jazz. That dun 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 da 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 dun. Yep. And the them being vamps are just because that's the world that musical theater lived in at the time. It lived in this world where we were trying to fit dialogue. I should say a vamp is a time where the music repeats the same musical phrase over the course of four beats or eight beats while there's dialogue over it so that stage business can happen. And then you can move on from that vamp whenever the time is You right. know, if these had been rock and rollers, right, that would have been the bass and the drums. Oh, and yeah. we remember them the way we remember, you know, those famous openings mm -hmm. to songs. You just go, oh my God. Yeah. you know a bar and a half in and i know what song that is yeah yeah i i yeah so i would not say that they have any sort of like cohesive musical language i would say the thing that i think about when i'm playing their music is it's definitely an old time musical theater feel like it's going to sound and feel like a classical musical i think they tend to have melodies that feel like they're from 20 years earlier, melodies that are extremely melodic, sit really easily in your ear, and a chord structure that sonically feels like it does, but if you break down into that chord structure, there tend to be a lot of weird jazz alterations or extensions to those chords that don't hit your ear in a way that sounds strange. And I think that sort of like simple musical sophistication is what I think of for their work. Some of it I think is because they probably worked with really good orchestrators. <laughs> One of them who, Ralph Burns, who worked on this movie. So yeah, that's what I would say about them. Oh, and I do wanna say the other story that I love about Candor and Ebb is they wrote Florida the Red Menace in 1965 which Liza Minnelli starred in and it was produced by Hal Prince and it opened and the, at that time, reviews could make or break a show and it got absolutely panned. This was their first show, they were kids. And they got called into Hal Prince's office the next morning, assuming he was going to tell them like, yeah, nice try, but that's it for you guys. And instead he said, yeah, the reviews weren't good but what's the next project? And oh, wow. I think about that story a lot because that is how you get career musical theater writers is by well, trusting this, them. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, that's how you become helpers. You sure, know? yes, mean, that too. By, by trusting your own gut and, yeah. you know, and, and knowing, because he's done some, I mean, you know, he's not picked winners. I mean, he's, uh, he's picked all the shows I've come or loved immediately, but I can't say if I was writing checks that he'd be the first person I'd go to, even though I think he's brilliant. Sure, yeah. So yes, you're absolutely right. That's, yeah. Sorry, I know I monologued about Candor and yeah. Ebb for a little bit. Do, it's good. Would, do one of you want to say anything about him, about them before we talk about Bob Fosse? I'm good. Cabaret in Chicago are two of my favorite shows, so. And part of it is because they're not afraid to work to play with structure. That's yeah. really why I like both. They're both so both those shows, and I don't know Flora very well. Uh, are so theatrical. I don't know Flora as a show either. I do know the score, and there are some 
amazing songs in that show. Some of them show up in And the World Goes Round, which is one of their famous reviews. Yeah, that's a good one. And we don't have to talk about Liza Minnelli too much. I think her performance in this movie speaks for itself. But there, she has talked about, and I think this happens sometimes, where there are performers who just uniquely match a composer's voice. And Kander and Ebb happen to be that for Liza Minnelli, and Liza Minnelli happens to be that for Kander and Ebb. She is just able to give their songs voice. And you can see it if you go watch Liza with a Z, which has songs that they wrote, especially for her, which is not the case for Cabaret because she wasn't in the original Broadway production of Cabaret because they thought she was too inexperienced to be cast in it, which is odd to think about for a 19 year old Sally Bowles. Um, well, it doesn't kind of odd since she'd already done a, a Broadway show. So it right. feels like that's just a lot of baloney that covers up the real reason. I mean, whatever it might be. Yeah, and comes from a theatrical pedigree, and yeah. I wonder, and you know, I somebody asked me this, and I answered without really thinking, I wonder if she couldn't do the accent. I mean, I wonder if that's just not in her wheelhouse. I've never heard her do an accent. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. It's... Um, they actually talked about that a little bit on, the, on some behind-the-scenes stuff, and that the accent was, they specifically, you know, worked on this film, they they tried to make it so that she wouldn't have to do too much of an accent but then additionally they didn't felt uh, or i have no idea about the play but uh, she was seen as kind of an unconventional choice because she didn't look like the the uh, look enough like the short-haired performers from the era in the 1930s huh. so um uh, okay. they, they felt that she she was just not a good fit for that kind of stuff. So, okay. right. So, Matt, in the in the stage show, she's English. I mean, they they flip right. Yeah, it's flopped. Yeah, so she's the one. And you know, the only place that it really bothered me, I got mentioned to Zach earlier. The only place it bothered me is that in the stage show, when Cliff is asking Sally to marry him and go home, they're going home to Ohio or Indiana, or I mean, they're going home to the middle of the United States. Here, Brian is asking her to come to Cambridge. Yeah, to Cambridge. Yeah. You've been to Cambridge? I mean, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And it's urban and it's close to London. Yeah. Okay. And, well, I let's mean, go. <laughs> yeah. I get why she didn't want to go, but I think it's a completely different thing for the audience um, yeah. and, and an in- interesting choice. But I think they wanted to go back. I mean, when we start talking about this, I, Fossey wanted to go back to more of the source material makes, makes sense. The fact, like you were mentioning those other states to film um, shows, and while they cut, as they say in Birdcage, cut, don't add. As they cut stuff, they didn't change things. I mean, I'm really, I'm, I literally would doubt we'll find the truth anywhere. But at what point did someone say, sure, do the show, but please do a different show? Well, it it's was, a different play. It's a different story. It was actually, Hugh Wheeler was a lot of it because Christopher, Christopher Isherwood was not all that fond of the stage adaptation and right was it Christopher Sherwood yeah or um, the movie actually yeah and neither was Gene Ross who was like the heavy inspiration for Sally Bowles uh, she yeah I kind of care less of, I mean I, I'm sure she's a dear woman I care less about what she thinks I care more about what Isherwood thinks yeah. and I feel like I feel like it's a league of their own issue 
which is the TV series, if you've seen it at all or, or heard about I it, it, based yeah. on the film, is, oh, it's just incredibly gay. There are lesbians everywhere. Yay! <laughs> but the fact that the original movie didn't have that, I don't damn that for it. It's not the movie Penny Marshall would or could make at that time. So I think Isherwood, having lived his entire life, kind of went, oh, no, it's time to have a lot, uh, you know, a gay man on stage. And yeah. I'm sure that, or, you know, and on film. And they ended up with this sort of weird, like, well, he's bisexual. We'll take baby steps toward him being, you know, toward him being gay. So, um, but it is interesting. So Hugh, but the thing is, Hugh Wheeler wasn't on the original show, was he? Uh, say that again? No. He, he was not on the original show. He was not, but the, so this, the Mac story was restored from the original mm -hmm. which did not cool. have the cut story between the Fritz. yeah yeah and Fritz and Natalia I'm just wondering like how they bought it or maybe this is always how it happens but how they bought it and then sh shredded the, the book I believe it was actually from the producers and <laughs> the the story goes that Bob Fosse was not the one who had the idea to make all of the music diegetic. That was actually brought to him, which I was floored when I heard that. I, I thought for sure that would have been, been his idea. So yeah. I, I think it was presented as part and parcel of the, of the project. I think it totally works. And I also think that if, you're, if you cut Schultz and Snyder, it makes it really easy to make that choice. Yes. Are we ready to go to go into the movie? Uh, well, let's talk about let's talk about Bob Fosse first, and then we oh, can yeah. and then we can get there. Uh, <laughs> so, Bob Fosse directed this movie, and the I we've said it already, but I really cannot recommend enough that people go watch Fosse Verdon if they want to get a little bit better overview of Fosse's life. But Fosse was. A visionary director, probably the most important choreographer in musical theater history, or the top three, or the top five. Uh, certainly in the top five, probably top three in the argument for top one. And he's someone who started performing in nightclubs when he was 13. Sounds like he was sexually assaulted by a lot of the lady performers. He would have, uh, like, apparently he lost his virginity at 13, got his first uh, sexual encounter, encounter younger than that, and does not excuse any of his later behavior towards women, but he would continue throughout his career, especially as he gained fame and notoriety to generally view women as, he didn't treat women as human beings all of the time there he slept around a lot and of course the paradox of Bob Fosse is he did marry Gwen Verdon and he had a child with Gwen Verdon and they eventually divorced because he slept around too much and wasn't nice enough to her but they did always have a strong relationship for their daughter and when their relationship eventually did break up, not just because of Anne Reinking, who he would later end up with, but because of any number of other chorus women, he moved on to Anne Reinking and Anne Reinking, the, they had their honeymoon period, but he didn't stop sleeping around just because he was with Anne Reinking at that point. And 
by all accounts caused her immense pain. And nevertheless, Anne Reinking has dedicated her life to maintaining his history, maintaining his works. She was the producer behind Fosse, that review that I mentioned earlier in 1999. She ran or maybe still runs Broadway Theater Project down in Florida, which was dedicated to training young people in musical theater, but also had a strong contingent towards teaching the Bob Fosse choreography. And it should be mentioned, like, choreography is a weird art form in the sense that it can live on film. Sometimes it does live on film as it does in this movie and as it does in filmed versions of Bob Fosse shows. But a lot of times choreography just lives in dancers' heads. And if they don't pass it down, then it doesn't get remembered. And his choreographic vocabulary, something that came out of Jack Cole, but was then evolved to compensate for things that he hated him about himself. He did not have particularly good turnout. So his choreographic style involves a lot of contortions, compressions of the body where your knees are tilted inwards rather than outwards. And it's something that he adopted to be part of his vocabulary. He started going bald at a very young age. So the famous hat is something that he adopted. He did not like the look of his hands. He did not like the look of his fingers. So he got famous for using white gloves. And isn't it, um, isn't it true that one of the only places you can see him dance is in Kiss Me Kate? Is yes. that right? Yeah, in the Kiss Me Kate movie. And he actually, I, I'll, if I can find a link to his solo, I'll put it in the show notes because he choreographed his solo and it's unbelievable. It's like the entire movie of Kiss Me Kate lives in this one world. And then Bob Fosse does his 30 second solo. And it's just like, what movie are we in? What happened? <laughs> it is so raunchy. It is, has such a weird energy. And yeah. What's so weird though, I think is that again, I don't know who directed Kiss Me Kate, but it's actually remarkably Shakespearean to me. Like it's what about Kiss Me Kate is about thematically. I know that sounds weird. Also, you know, Anne Rankin passed. Oh, right. Of course, I forgot. This, I, I December knew she of 2020, because yes. you were saying that I kind of thought maybe I'm wrong. No, you're, yeah, no, you're right. I just during the pandemic. I blocked it out of my mind because no, it I know. sucks it, it, yeah. too much. Yeah, it was a big, a biggie. But um, yeah, I he's, um yeah. Everything about him is is the is the good, what the high the high and the low. The of, high and the low, yeah. A brilliant man who then you know was difficult to work with. I guess on all on almost every level. That's and, and tormented, like, and you can if you go watch all that jazz, you will see his torment because it is a self loathing movie that he makes about himself. What I've always found astounding about the trajectory of his career, so his. His first job as a choreographer was on The Pajama Game, which opened mm -hmm. in 1954 on Broadway. And by all accounts, this opened and his big number in that show is Steam Heat, which again, if I can find a link to it, I'll put it in the show notes. And he became a household, a household name and a sensation virtually overnight. 
in the 1950s just because people watched this number. They watched what he did with Steam Heat and they were like, what is this? Where did this come from? We have not seen this on a Broadway stage before. And then he would do the same thing in Damn Yankees a year later. And Gwen Verdon was obviously the star in that as Lola with, what's the big number? Who's got the pain? Who's got the pain when they do the mumbo? Oh, right. right. Both of those being numbers in both of those shows that you really don't need. Oh, completely superfluous. Yeah. Which is so interesting since we spent all this time in musical theater trying to push Justify, together yeah. dance, music, and, and narrative. And Faustian, literally, you're right. One false swoop goes, yeah, but then there's this that's just about sort of theme and tone and that's all. And Especially it, it makes like, them the an absolute nightmare to produce now because what are you going to, you can't be Bob Fosse, you know, you can't create his, his work. Yeah. So anyway, we don't have to spend too much more time on Bob Fosse. I like, but I think the one other story that I want to tell about him that I think really encapsulates who he is is the work that went on on Pippin. And you can go watch the original Broadway production of Pippin, but he, by all accounts, Pippin was a show that Stephen Schwartz wrote that he imagined was going to be this fun, young, coming of age story. And Bob Fosse had other ideas. He created the role of the lead player in that show and viewed the lead player as the dark version of himself. And Bob Fosse and Stephen Schwartz's relationship got so eventually Bob Fosse kicked Stephen Schwartz out of rehearsals. And if you go watch that original, at some point during Pippin's quest to find himself, he has an entire orgy on stage. This is 1971. This is the year before this movie comes out. So it's uh the auteur but again, a coming of age story of a young man in difficult times yeah you know it, it fits the period so well and i think he really nailed that and i i mean i haven't seen the whole thing but it sounds like the revival sort of did did some more things for the period you know and you gotta of pippin yeah oh i have yeah i haven't seen it either the big circus one excellent okay sorry i monologued for way too long about those those three <laughs> humans <laughs> um do we do either of you have any advice or insight for first time viewers of this film? I do. I'd have to say, give it time, let it wash over you and pay attention to everything. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. Yeah, that's very fair. Yeah, I don't have anything in particular. Just I, I do agree with the comment that you have to give it a little time and like actually sit with it. This isn't one you should it's not when you want to be distracted while you're watching but it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty easy watch besides that yeah and i think the only thing i would say is if you're if this conversation of how it fits in the history of musical theater of musical films interests you i just watch maybe some clips from earlier movie musicals if you're not all that familiar with them go watch a few numbers from oklahoma Go watch a few numbers from Sound of Music. Watch the opening to Guys and Dolls on film and, and then sit down and watch this film and you'll get that juxtaposition. All right, let's take a break and we will be back with spoilers. Ah, 
All right. Welcome back. I hope you watched the movie. If not, we're gonna gonna spoil it all. There's there's Nazis. The Nazis show up. There there's a bit of Nazis. Uh, they they're sneaky though. <laughs> they um, they are. Why don't we? They work them in slowly as it goes. I was trying to think whether this would have been the first Nazis in a musical, but then I guess obviously there aren't because there's Sound of Music in 1960. But that probably was. I should have looked it up. Yeah, there's, there's also a lot of sex. There is a lot of sex. There's this a lot good. of sex. And I wanted to quote this thing that I saw that talked about why it got what was called an X rating in the United Kingdom. Um, oh, really? Which, yeah, which is sort of, uh, sort of makes me sad, actually. But um, it got it really not just because there was, you know, sex scene on stage, but because let me see, be just because of the relationship. She's a free-spirited egotist, a female gigolo who eschews any notion of settling down in a proposal of a brighter Cambridge future and instead opting for a lavish, morally debauched life. <laughs> they talked about oh, this geez. because he's bisexual, because of the abortion. Um, they got rid of that rating, but yeah, isn't that, I just find it to Yikes. be. And it was what, well, I know. PG here? It got a PG here. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, but watching it, it seems, I mean, the content that it's talking about is is dealing with a lot of things that are, that are kind of adult themed, but it's not, I think it's very watchable. I, did, I would let my kids watch this film. There's, I, there's nothing that I had any issues with as far as that. So yeah, I don't know. It is true though, our protagonists, I mean, you have to then accept that we're rooting for the girl who sleeps willingly and excitedly with everyone if she good wants. for her <laughs> i oh well and i if she wants and i think one of the one yeah. of the themes that goes all the way through which i think you know is, is big and obvious right i think is her watching her think she can control the men in her life mm -hmm. i think both physically mm -hmm. and sexually and then that great thing that max talks about how we oh we can control them and then after tomorrow right, yeah. me yeah. listening to brian say how do you still think right. you can control mm -hmm. that i think that idea of control is just thematically um directed all the way through who's controlling and we think that the um mc is controlling things and then you know he is much less I want to talk about the opening and the closing for a moment. Yeah, well, before we do that, I do want yeah. to hear, Matt, what was your reaction watching this for the first time? I really enjoyed it a lot. I liked this film. So I did have one issue, not with the film, but with watching the film, is that just because of where it landed in the time and the beginning of the school year, I have been much pressed, more pressed for time than normal. So by necessity i had to watch this in pieces and it's not made to be watched in pieces mm -hmm. i don't know if that makes yeah, sense uh and so i that i was a little bit just frustrated with my schedule because i wish that i could have i don't know I, I wish that i could have had a time where i could have just really sat and got into this one i had told zach after i watched it that i knew that Liza Minnelli's performance in this one was very highly regarded and was a great performance, but that did not prepare me for how good she was in this film. It, she, her performance really blew me away. And 
like I said, the 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 movie as a movie, the the musical is great, and I love that stuff as well. But just as a piece of film was really incredible, incredible to me. And I thought the choices that they made were so audacious, especially for the time period. And so as a bit of film history, it really stood out to me. How many, roughly, how many GIFs were there that you recognized? Where you were like- I don't know, oh, I've, 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 I, I've seen a lot of just like recordings of the performances of the songs mm-hmm. from this, so I recognize a lot of those. But as far as gifts that I've seen, I, I, I don't know that I've seen a whole, a whole bunch. But I did recognize a lot of all of the performance imagery from inside the cabaret were things that I had basically seen somewhere. It was everything that happens outside of it that I had not really seen. Yeah. And Tammy, how about you? Well, interesting that you talk about just which I, I have less experience with, but I can tell you that as when we were younger, the um, screw Maximilian, I do, I do too, was all over. I mean, everybody said that. That would be a way yeah. to change the conversation, be something to like just toast at a party. You know, screw Maximilian, I do, boom, I do too. Um, uh, so that was I, love it. I, I had to... S- get over how different it was which actually took me a little bit of time i also feel i watched it in the afternoon and interesting sort of along what matt was saying it's meant to be watched in a dark theater yeah yeah one because the lighting and and it's and the cinematography but also because i feel like i need to be closer to the in that cabaret than Mm -hmm. my light living room on a unbelievably sunny seattle afternoon so um that that hit me and that doesn't always hit me so um but no, I was aware, and should you be, different conversation maybe, I was aware though of a lot of the choices um, without sure. really having to, to look, at, look at them. And, um, you know, I just, again, yeah, I think it's, I, I, I got a million things to say in terms of just specific choices. But one interesting thing to me is that a couple of things that I read just in the last couple of days talked about sort of how dark it is visually and, or tonally no tonally mm-hmm. and i'm going to say again i think the stage show is much much darker because of what happens to Schultz and snyder and i waited uh, i waited for the other shoe to drop when after the the wedding in the synagogue and i'm like oh this is going to go badly with them and then that's the last we see of them um mm. which is lovely and i guess an issue with story that's kind of how it works as well but so in terms of it being so dark the kind of places where it's brilliant, which I think one of you have mentioned already, is exemplified by the number when um, the guy's getting beaten up. Oh, did we talk? And, about I don't think we did talk about that. Um, yeah. um, no, no, but the intercutting, yeah. the fact that they're intercutting, yes. same thing with the opening. The opening, um, not the opening part I'm going to talk about, though. The opening and also that particular number where we're watching the the, the, the little, they're in Lederhosen, they're in the most iconic mm-hmm. German, you know, folk mm-hmm. where possible um, and doing this like pity pat thing while he's getting beaten. Yeah. Um, yeah. To death, I assume. I'm kind of assuming that perhaps he's the body we see later, or maybe he's not. I thought that was a brilliant reference to the state show because it looks like it's a fruit stand when they're driving. You know, they're they're driving by mm-hmm. and the guy. Yeah, they're all standing there. Yeah. So and, we, um, should, we should say quickly because I assume Matt doesn't know, and maybe some of our listeners don't know the Sorry. the b plot for the movie is completely changed from the stage musical 
And I believe the reason they do this in the stage musical, it's essentially your classic musical second love story where the woman who runs the housing unit has a gentleman caller who is Jewish and really likes her and he brings her fruit and they have all of these songs that don't take place in the cabaret. And it's a lot of really nice moments, but then eventually they, he ends up proposing to her and she, I think she says yes, but then eventually has to say no. So they have a big, they have an engagement party. Right. And a brick is thrown, and we also get our first whiff of who might be an actual Nazi, mm-hmm. Nazi sympathizer. So That's she turns right. him down. So they don't get married, and he leaves. Although he's not going to leave, so we all know things are going to go badly for him, because where would he go? As he says. Exactly. So um, he's not going to leave. So yeah, so I mean, so in a way, watching the movie, I felt like, and especially that audience in 71, still again, way closer to the war than any of us are now, are kind of going, oh, they get married. He came out as a Jew. He's, he's and in our terminology, his authentic self. This will get them killed. Unless her money saves them, which I think is another thing that they sort of, I read a review that really sort of thought that it was not good that they were just doing with the wealthy people. But I kind of like the fact that watching it, we're watching someone who should be able to be safe and probably won't be. And I found that to actually be interesting. And again, post fiddler it's you know it it i thought that was fascinating actually and also because he changes i mean i think it's also about we see sally and fritz and he's a gigolo which i think has a little bit different meaning than i i, I don't think he is just a male prostitute i was trying to sort of parse that out I was too, but he's yeah. looking for a rich wife and he is in trancing young rich women and he changes because of love mm-hmm. and sally does not and i i thought that was actually really a nice play well, Hugh Wheeler does know what he's doing. A nice playwriting touch. Yeah, I had I had a pretty similar reaction to you. As I had said, I loved this movie in college. It's my number one movie musical, but I had forgotten how different it was from the musical. So I did spend a lot of time being like, wait, trying just trying to find my mooring with what I was expecting, having now done the stage show twice. And so it's sort of, my experience was sort of bookended. I was very emotionally in the movie for about the first 30 minutes. And then the middle hour, middle 45 minutes, I was like, what is going on? Where are we? When are we? And really had like an, I was in my head for so much of that. And then for the last half hour of the movie, I was just 100% back in it emotionally. And Yeah, so kind of a weird experience watching it, but I have always found that like the, I think it's just hard to do movie musicals. So I really like that they found a way to choose to do Mm -hmm. this in a way that works for me. And as Matt said, like just having Liza Minnelli be the best thing in the world Mm -hmm. apparently helps a lot. Well, and I think I find that as an actor, she has like almost zero range and that she completely was cast incredibly well, Yeah, and, which people didn't think. But I think watching the movie, I mean, I've watched her in other movies, New York, New York, she's not, she's just older. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, mean, I just sort of feel, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's my, my personal feeling, but I just feel again, like film was used. I mean, the things I love about theater 
I love about theater and they have to do it split focus and things happening at the same time and you get that third truth. Mm -hmm. I think what they did here was use film to intercut, which you have to do perfectly, in my opinion, or it sucks. Yeah. I think there's no middle ground. It works or it doesn't, in my mind. 100% agree. And that's one of the things that stood out to me so much. I had, as I was watching it, it was about halfway through and I texted Zach and I said, how did they do the intercuts? Like, how did they do this on the stage? Is it just the two stories happening at the same time in different places? Because that, that really, really got me. And the other thing is that how slow and deliberate and, and obliquely they introduce the Nazis into the story and eventually into the club because so much of it happens through religion. It happens off screen and you don't, especially there's that scene where they're fighting and it doesn't show the actual blows. It shows the, the punches coming down and then it cuts away. And so you have to, so much is left to your imagination. So uh, it, it would be really easy to make this film and have those intercuts feel amateurish and feel corny for lack of a better word but it works perfectly in this one i also think that the casting of most of the nazis as post childhood barely Mm -hmm. works so well i love in tomorrow belongs to me that the first person who sings out of the audience is this girl who just got rage written all over her face this is not joyous this is not we are all one germany Mm -hmm. this is a this is a you know, screw anybody who messes with me. And mm-hmm. um, I also love in that scene that as we go and people stand up, that it's an old man, right? Somebody who's been there, who's like shaking mm-hmm. his head and not doing anything. I also want to say, and I had, didn't read this anywhere, but I just want to say, I feel like that is a total shout out to the Edelweiss moment in Sound of Music. Oh. Completely turned on its ear, right? Mm-hmm. They're close enough to hear an Edelweiss, which again, you can, they did in the movie so beautifully where they're singing from the stage when every, and, and everybody stands out and it's the Nazis who are going kind of WTF what these is a lot of people standing up around us. And, you know, in this it's tomorrow belongs to me and they all stand up and they're angry and it's yeah. exactly the same moment, except we're watching sort of our, our heroes look at them and get worried or not because Sally's still not worried. I thought that was great. And that didn't, I, I just hadn't, that hadn't occurred to me. I, so um, so I want to jump in about this opening closing yeah. thing just for yeah, let's talk quick. about. It. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing: this is a musical. Mm-hmm. It opens in complete silence. Yeah, yeah, and stillness, and credits are rolling, and it ends the same way. When and Merrick, it ends without mm-hmm. him finishing the note, completing right. He does that thing where we're in midair. It makes me like physically upset for a little bit after After Abiento, you mean as i have to sing it myself Mm -hmm. literally (laughs) i wasn't in a movie theater so i could no it's like that you know when a car stops and every once in a while you don't get that back yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it just makes your whole body out of time um and the whole idea that the opening is is silent there's no sort of idea of an overture or beginning or anything and then the first thing we see is this distorted mirror which Mm -hmm. then even if the ending didn't happen as brilliantly as it does, where we see the reflection of all the, the uniforms, even if we didn't, it still works. So yes, we're immediately yeah. in a fun house. We're immediately in a place where pay attention because things are going to be hard to see or they're going to be right in front of you and you're going to miss them. I just felt like thematically it's uh, amazing. And the yeah, other thing that's along with it, because yeah, because we see at the very beginning is the stillness. 
So most people at the time, some people might have said, again, I haven't read this. What are you doing? This is really bad acting. The camera pans and they're not engaged. I mean, later they're going to be laughing their butts off. At the beginning, they're not really engaged. They're literally still like no act. They were told not to move. This Same is thing when, it, when they drive by. What? You're talking about when it, in the opening number, it cuts to patrons of the cabaret. Yes. yes. Yeah. They're not moving and they're not moving unnaturally. Yeah. And that happens when they, when they pass the dead body in the street and there are um, a bunch of Nazis and other people just standing there. Standing they are unnaturally up. still. Yes. It's very unsettling. Very unsettling. And I think I, I hadn't thought about the word. It's absolutely unsettling, but it also feels like, to me, these are moments when the people who are watching them had a still moment, it's the I am a camera thing, to see what was oh, going sure, on yeah. and do something or not. And since that's part mm -hmm. of the, you know, um, I love in the musical, which we don't get in the movie, the Isherwood's first line or last line, I think, you know, we were blind. We weren't, I knew a girl, her name is Sally Bowles. Yeah. Uh, we lived at a time and we were blind or something like that. And that's fine that it's that heavy handed. I don't think we, I don't think they needed it for the movie, but I do, I just feel like he, he said that because there's a stillness or this, there's irrational laughter. There are a couple of scenes in the cabaret where the laughter actually started to make me uncomfortable. Yeah. I think that's on purpose. Yeah. And it, it mm -hmm. is that you mentioned how it opens on the reflective shot, opens on the mirror and closes on the mirror. And I was curious, like it is sort of, the whole point of the show, this idea of a cabaret where you go to leave your troubles outside and here it's warm and here it's happy. But then at the end of the show, it's like, it's actually not happy. And if you're paying attention, all of the songs are holding a mirror up to the world. They're holding a mirror up to yeah. the action that's happening. And it, it's like a deception on the audience. It's not <laughs> the... MC lied to you, you know, he, he wasn't a very good master of ceremonies. Well, but that also he, he thinks he's in a world that he can control. Correct. So he can make fun of the Nazis. And he, you know, and I love the fact that in that first scene, when the guy who finally gets beaten up, throws the Nazi out, it's okay. But then later it's not okay. Yeah. And um, that the master of ceremonies, I think the MC feels like he can control it. And, you know, in a lot of recent stage adaptations, the play ends with him getting picked up or him getting beaten up or him. I mean, that's that's the other way to go or that we find out. I mean, I've, and I was this the Broadway one? I think it was Don Warehouse. Yeah, doesn't he actually have a Star David at the end? Yeah, so I believe it was the Donmar Warehouse was the first production to do this where at the end of the show during that A Vita Sane, A Biento, he puts the some productions, Purple Star, it might have just been a Star of David oh. in, in the original time they did it. And I the conceit is supposed to be like, he's going to the chamber and this was the show that they were putting on in the camps to oh. sort of get them all through it. Um, I don't really need it's, that. I mean, it's not, in, it it's not in the script, but it is something that yeah. has been added for productions and I've seen it other places. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that the like the main focus of a lot of the articles that I read were they they viewed the master of ceremonies as basically through the film as being a Nazi conspirator, the way that uh, the all these um, 
Yeah, I know. This, Wait, this is why, I don't this think is, that at all. Where did you read that? I read it in four different articles that were really widely read and, and cited, but it was at the time period when the movie came out. And so, um, and the, and so that's why I was like, I read these articles and it just blew my mind. Cause I was like, I didn't see that in the movie at all. Like I didn't, I don't know where they're getting this from. Um, and then there's some things that go on and talk about that. And uh, there's some other articles that I read that were responding to that. So I wonder if maybe there's like, people are trying to make it more clear for uh, audiences that didn't seem to understand uh, what was going on in the film. Yeah. Time. I, I did read it. There were people who thought if you could see her through my eyes was why the anti-Semitic and all I want, I mean, to me, it just feels so very obviously a comment I, and yeah. did, a satire. Did, and the point is, is that that would be worse than Mary. I mean, it seems like a dud to me, but yes, I, I do see him. Um, it just seems in the movie, agree. they made it so clear that he is making fun. Over I thought so too. Yeah. Over. Did you know the ending of that song, Maddie? Did, were you surprised? Uh, no. It's uh yeah, I was surprised by that. I didn't know the ending of that song, but I should say I was surprised that he said it, but it was very clear to me that that's what it was. That's what the song was about, if that makes sense. So um, you're smarter than I am. So because... that, that he actually jumped in and said the line. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't expect him to do that. I expected him to, to leave it a little bit more subtle. They, they have changed it in some future productions because this is a line uh, we should recap. I, I don't, maybe people don't watch, maybe not everyone watches the movie. So there's a full song where he is singing, if you could see her through, through my eyes, you like, I understand your objections. And then the woman that he's singing about is in a gorilla costume. And yeah. the whole, like, oh. the whole joke of the song, joke in scare quotes, is that he's supposed to be excusing that he's dating a gorilla and then the button of the song is if you could see her through my eyes she wouldn't look jewish at all and of course the turn is the problem isn't that he's dating an animal isn't that he's fucking an animal it's that she's a jewish animal how dare um mm -hmm. and the yes this under never mind that john kander and fred ebb are both jewish underwent a lot of criticism and so the future productions have changed it to it doesn't even scan correctly so i don't know why i think it's she wouldn't be a miskite at all there's a cut song yeah. miskite yes. um, which is meaningless it is meaningless to me. yeah yeah it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever and yes i i should say i think i'm the only jewish person on this podcast but <laughs> just in case it isn't clear from listening to us yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, it's crazy. But I do think that um, getting back to the cinematography, I mean, we can just keep talking about that because so, and some of the cuts are fast. That's why I say you have to yeah. pay attention. Mm -hmm. Because yep. again, like any kind of brilliant work, there are moments where each thing alone does not tell the whole story and you have to put it together. Yes. Which they help you do. Posse helps you do very well and can help you do it, but you have to put it together. And you also, I think, have to from the beginning or hopefully want to not say that the cabaret songs are over here and the stories over yes. here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that does happen at the beginning, but 
but I think you you to enjoy the movie or to get the most out of the movie, you really need to always think of them together. Well, I think, if there's a lyric, it's having something to do with what's going on that moment in the story. I think that's yes. why they spliced in Cliff, not sorry, Brian. Brian is Cliff in the stage show. That's why they spliced in those clips of Brian arriving on the train during Vilcom. And I like, I think it was to say the songs are going to mirror what happens. They are going to be in the cabaret. It's the character singing them, but yeah. that that's like your learning moment as an audience to say, this is going to be commenting on the action in the show. That is, that is deliberate. They, uh, in the interviews with Bob Fosse, he says that's on purpose mm-hmm. is so that you're drawing the connection that they're paralleling each other. Yeah. You have to teach the audience how to watch your show in the first five yep, minutes. Yep. Yep. And I think that's true on film. It's, I think, more true in theater, as a matter of fact. I also love, 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 love the first time we see Sally, she's in the chorus. I didn't notice until I was re-watching the scene for the podcast. I missed it the first time watching it. And I, I didn't notice that. it all. So. Oh, my God. The other <laughs> thing that you learn in that opening that you don't get in the stage show is that this is a burlesque. This is a vaudeville. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The ventriloquists, they're, you know, this is a whole, the, the dancers. The mud the, fighting, the mud yeah, wrestling. are just part of it. It's not all girls. There's a there's yeah. a dog and pony show. There's, you know, I love seeing the ventriloquists. And then I think we see a magician at one point. Mm-hmm. It just makes more sense. It gives it a total world. And I think um, tonally, and it, it's something that is so, feels so Bob Fosse, that it feels dirty in the movie and it feels dark and it feels not... It doesn't feel glamorous in the way that the stage show sometimes does take over and feels a little bit more glamorous because Mm. it's, I I think partly because you do have those shots of the patrons that where they're looking uninterested and they're, yeah, not. But they have money. This is not a low. Right. Which is, I think, I think it's actually suggested, but in the movie they make it, he he gives the patrons some bucks, Mm. which like, uh, I also like the fact that, again, since I think one of the themes is control, who can control what, and you definitely see it in, oh my God, what's her first song? Mine hair. What's her first song? Yeah, Mine hair. Where their bodies are so controlled. So and controlled. frankly, you know, fuck you, Mr. Fossey, you're not supposed to do that to the lead singer. That's what the girls around yeah. you were supposed to do. And I was really tuned in on the fact that she was doing that and singing yeah holding those poses the controls incredible and the controls unnatural again i think this is either bossy's work just falling to the right place or a brilliant director going no this is about control and not control and i think that song just and that's a new song for the movie right mine hair is yeah it was added for now it's back in the musical i'm pretty sure uh yes now now it i mean the, I actually wanted to ask Matt if he knew which songs were added for the movie. So mine hair. Yeah, no idea. Yeah. Do you know the other one? Cool. No. Could you guess? Do you know Tana? Nope. No idea. I can bear. I I only know because I think I know. Um, I don't remember. It's going to blow your mind because it's maybe this time. Oh right. Oh wow. Yeah. Hmm. Astounding. It, it's one of the. I think it's probably the driving reason why there have been so many versions of this show because it is both it and mine hair honestly are such great songs that it was like we got to do these in the show people are going to expect them well and i think that's i think that's the only 
there are only two songs I think that one and a perfectly simple couple whatever that song because are the only songs yeah that she sings outside the cabaret in the that are musical theater songs in the show in the show wait what's the other one oh maybe this Uh, time maybe this time no maybe this time is in the cabaret in the show oh yeah we didn't do it that way oh I think it's supposed we to moved be. It, we moved it to cabaret, but it started in, it started in the bedroom. Uh, yes, I believe that's correct. It starts in the bedroom okay. and then it moves. To, okay, good. Because yes. I remember that means that's how I remember that's how we did it. So, and Matt, in, in answer to your question about cuts, one of the great things that I love about theater is that you can just have, you can like, so when I did yeah. it, yeah. the cabaret lived and her bedroom was always on stage and Schneider's was always on stage. So there were always three spaces, always, always, always on stage. And so it's great to be able to keep, put your actors on stage and have them doing something in this play while that's being, while the MC's doing his thing. So the overlap is where I live. You know, I just think that's yeah. the- Yeah, makes know. sense. And you said that the, if I've tracked this correctly, the that song you started in the bedroom and then moved into the cabaret and so, I assume that the the character just kind of like walked over across the stage into, is that kind of how it worked? Yep. Took off Um, a robe. When when I did it, took off a robe, had her thing. thing. She's at the mic. I mean, that's perfect. And she she sung it a little bit differently because it was, you had to be on. I mean, I think the thing that Sally has to be on helps and really helps after you've worked when she's singing cabaret, I think. Um, If you've already established that she, she knows what she's doing. She's not, she's not bad at what she's doing. mm -hmm. I don't think. I, 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 and I know I've seen it when people sort of felt like, well, she's in that little place. She's not good. And I'm like, you know what, if your Sally's not a really good performer, then go home. What are we because- doing now? So in the original Isherwood book, the, she's not good. She's really bad and can't, can't even sing on key. Except um, what does he say about her? Uh, I can't remember. Yeah. So he said she was mesmerizing. Yes, exactly. So you keep um, your eyes. Well, that's a performer. Yeah. I mean, I would like yeah, to. Yeah, I agree. That um so i don't know it's just interesting so <laughs> yeah i sort of feel like maybe i've said this before uh bruce monroe music director and orchestrator mm-hmm. extraordinaire um here on this coast um he and i were talking once we were talking about bio musicals and that and this will connect to cabaret um and that the person who plays the role at some time in their life is or will be as powerful as the person that's playing. So Barbara Streisand can play Fanny Bryce and because she's going to be Barbara Streisand. And Joel Gray can play George Cohan because he's going to be Joel, Joel Gray. I mean, he is Joel mm-hmm. Gray. But, mm-hmm. And I would suggest that whoever plays your MC has to be that good because we're presented yeah. with someone who has the rhythm and tempo and pacing in their hands for this show, especially on stage. But I would even suggest in the movie that that is indeed true. And I think the same with Sally. I don't think we go to the end of the story with her if she's not someone who, when she's, that that her hopes and wishes are, if not attainable, at least seeable, I think. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's hard to imagine this without a dynamic Sally Bowles. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. You know, the one thing I missed getting rid of Schultz and Snyder and that's fine. I mean, with all the story stuff, I missed that Brian was not a writer. I'm, I did miss that. Like, I think that could have, 
I felt like there were too many dilettantes. You know, mm-hmm. I I think that that would have worked in the movie. I don't I don't think that needed to be cut. Everything else I understand they made big big story changes, but I think keeping him a writer. I don't know. I think I would have liked that. Yeah. So I sort of was trying to figure out why they would have done this, and Matt in the stage show because he's a writer, he also sort of functions as a narrator separate from the MC. Mm-hmm. The MC is the one who leads you through the show, but there's sort of like these things that function as voiceovers from Cliff at the opening of the show and at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, to, to mimic the Isherwood. Um, exactly. Sort of uh, idea. Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm guessing... The, the only thing I could come up with was that they wanted to get away. They didn't want to do that for the movie. So then they were like, well, why make him a writer? But I agree with you. I think yeah, maybe the idea of just coming to teach English lesson, English lessons is a little less, it makes a little less sense than a writer who's going to teach English lessons to get by, to be able to live. Yeah, I like that he had a reason to be, I mean, he went there because that's where a lot of people went. I mean, lots and lots yeah. and lots. And I think, again, if the, if the movie were to be made today, I would also suggest we'd see actually um, Black Americans working as well, mm-hmm. right? Because that's what sure. was happening then, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. And that he he would have more might have wanted and, and known and wanted that. Uh, that just, yeah, this is something I wish. Because it just, it just puts him more in a, are like all the men are don't do anything yeah and, and all the women work really hard right because <laughs> we see yeah. you know we do see snyder and we do see cost although we don't you know get to know her as well mm-hmm. um who's the prostitute who lives in the rooming house and um yeah the other thing that, that him being a writer does in the play it's fine he didn't do it, but it is an interesting motivator is that he needs some peace and quiet sometimes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He need he actually is there to try and work on this this book or short stories. It's important to him, and I think having nothing important to him just puts more focus on her, I guess. And I think in the film they made him kind of a didn't wasn't he like finishing his PhD there or something? There's an academic reason why he was there. Oh, or right, he hadn't which, finished it. He did say that. Yeah. I thought he was running yeah. away from finishing it. Possibly, I I don't know. The I will say the one thing about him being an English teacher. I, I agree generally with like how it affects the story. But for me personally, I did connect with that because as an English teacher, I was like, oh, easy for me to slot myself into that role. So, oh, and he uh, is an English teacher because that's how he's yeah. making money. That's how he's saying, like, yeah, paying yeah. for the money. Not or just paying that, for things. Uh, bisexual English teacher. That's yeah. right, yeah. And there so. you go. And I loved him translating. I loved mm-hmm. him translating the pornography. I do love- in the Oh, that, play, that I loved, yeah, that was yeah. great. <laughs> in the play, he actually, there is a moment in the play where he has just read Mein Kampf and Ooh. he actually has it and says, do you, to Sally, do you know what's in this? Mm-hmm. And she's like, of course I don't. Why right. would I read a book? Yeah. Well, I don't speak German. I don't really care. And it sounds dull and awful. And, um, and I kind of like that as well because he- he actually is a translator. She's been living there for years and he actually has more German. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Oh, no. I mean, it's everything. I, you know, we think, when you think about it coming out when it came out. Yeah. My only sadness, and again, if it were made now, it would be different, is in that wonderful moment, screw Maximilian, I do, I do too. When he says after the pause, I do too, she backs away horrified. And I kind of felt like everything we know about her, 
would either have her, I think, a, a, be more jealous to him, like it's okay for me, but not you, or I think we kind of enjoy it because that is what's going to happen when the three of them finally really hook up. Mm-hmm. So to me, that felt like a choice born of someone else in the room, not Fosse. Yeah, it felt, it felt like that to me too. A little yeah. bit, so. Why was she so horrified? Why didn't she just like, you know, well. It felt very out of, out of character to me. Yeah. It's like, that's, that's like, well, she's not going to have it. <laughs> that's not yeah. going to be, I don't know. Of course, I always thought Bob Fosse was, was bisexual too. I, I know nothing. I just seeing him in his world, I'm like, really? That's, okay. Who knows? I don't know. I think he's fiercely heterosexual. <laughs> that is certainly true. Yeah. What what that is ex- certainly true. I have never read any extensions past women for him, but no. No. We sort of haven't been a hundred percent structured, which is totally fine. But there were a couple things that I wanted to say about the opening still. Yeah. One of them is just so prior to this for movie musicals, this amount of cutting, this amount of use of the camera in synchronicity with the choreography w- mm-hmm. did not happen and it happens later in the movie but you can really see him going crazy in this opening and one of the things that you learn in theater school is like the camera when you watch a movie the camera tells you where to look but on stage you have to tell the audience where to look. And you can either do that with movement, you can do that by being loud, you can do it with sound, with lighting, I mean, you can do it with set, there are any number of ways. But I feel like in this opening, you can really see Fosse being like, oh, here's all these angles that I can never explore on stage. (laughs) And I am going to do every single one of them in this movie. And the close-ups. And the close-ups, and the one- the, the camera is so free in this movie it's just he moves it everywhere and it feels so intimate mm-hmm. which you just don't get in a lot of movie musicals it feels like so many of them are just pulled back and just feel like I, they're rep, trying to replicate the experience of the stage but this one just moves you really into just the moment and into the place so can i tell you i usually hate this i i oh i i will literally mumble pull back pull back pull back yeah. pull back pull back yeah i'm a yeah. fetistaire right who contracted sure. that you will always show my whole body thank you very much so i love divine hair actually that we saw most of the performers most of the time mm-hmm. so yeah i think he pretty skillfully did both because i agree yes, I with I the agree. Fun, but usually i'm like going oh my god there's a lot of really cool stuff happening i want to see it yeah. yeah. Well, what they, I think the way he compensates in this movie and the way that it doesn't drive you crazy is just because there's a lot of focus and there's a lot of cutting, there's also paradoxically a lot of continuous shots. So you know yeah. that those dancers did it. You know that what you're seeing is live or relatively live. And the one, the one that really stuck out to me in the, op- I mean, there's a million places in the opening, but near the end of the song, when they all come down for the very quiet Vilkoman, and they're all bunched house right, or yeah, house right downstage left, and the camera comes in on them, and they track across the stage, and the camera tracks along the audience with them. And it's one of those things where when you track an entire group of people across a stage on 
like on stage in a theater, it's very affecting in because you see this entire clump of humans moving slowly together and it looks like something that it is not, but you don't get that effect on film. Instead, I think what you get in that moment is him telling you, we're gonna be following the performers for this movie rather than you being in the place of the audience, which is a complete switch from the stage yeah. show. Because in the stage show, when the MC comes out and says, Vilkoman, he's talking to you. He is talking to the audience. It is a, it's the same thing, the audience of the cabaret and you, the human sitting in the seat, come inside, leave your troubles outside. That is an imperative to the audience that is not true in the movie. It's an imperative to those fake people in the audience who we're not going to care about and not see again. Right. Yeah. Well, and the way the camera moves freely as well, it moves a lot like between the front of the stage and on the stage and be from behind the stage, like backstage. Uh, oh, yeah. I think it's really clearly indicated that you're supposed to be following it as if you were part of the performance. I don't know. I don't know if that quite works, but yeah, uh, something along those lines. No, I think that Well, makes sense. and thank God he put in uh, the, the the shot that I think has to be in every single show that takes place anywhere near a theater, which is there is a great moment where we watch Sally take a breath backstage and then go on stage mm -hmm. and yeah. sing. Yes. And yes. I can watch brilliant, that brilliant. a million times. Yes. Uh, oh, and the part where she's like repeating what he's saying That's as she's right. coming on yeah, stage. Cool. Uh, brilliant. Such a, so good. And so right. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes. that's exactly. So I guess that's what I mean is that, I mean, is that it, it's, it's ridiculously realistic and not at the same time, which, yes. mm, yeah. which is the time and the period. And, you know, we sort of just kind of moved around sort of why, why we can see this again now is because you know, the whole idea of something's coming mm -hmm. and something yes. not good. And at what point, I mean, I, you, I don't know if you guys have friends who've left the country, we have friends that have left the country and um, you know, it's, it's, it's a big deal. At what point do you then say, um, oh yeah, they're not going to overturn our marriage. Well, you know, uh, I guess not, but you know, if so, that becomes a pretty awful thing at the hospital and you know and then do you leave do you leave before that do you just mm -hmm. expect things to get better i know it's different i i wax poetic that it's not the same thing but it, there are similarities I yes think. yeah so i think it's really easy to say you know money protects us because it does mm -hmm. and other things protect us and at the same time um you know we can't control we can't control all of this we can only control some of it well, well, something that um, has always been said to me as a Jew, as someone who's Jewish, because I've spent a lot of time, I'm also a straight white male. I've spent a lot of time reckoning with my privilege and recognizing my privilege. And I've said a lot, like I'm a straight white guy. I get to live in all of these worlds and do all these things that... Um, without thinking about them that other people don't get to do. And something that is frequently said to me by people is, you are a straight white guy and you are afforded those privileges now, but you're only white as long as people continue to view Jewish people as white. And that is, mm -hmm. and that is something that is not indelible. It's something that won't necessarily always be there. And 
uh, yeah, there's a whole history of that of who is white. Yeah, which yes. I had no, no. I mean, as an as an historian, I, I had no idea really until I sort of started to really look into. There are actually boxes people check, and sometimes you know. And no, it's boundaries that are very fuzzy. Um, and so the, they're only enforced through violence. And that's what makes it particularly, particularly frightening. So. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel the same way. I mean, I, I grew up in a very privileged, wealthy place and am white and, but I'm a girl <laughs> and a lesbian. And so, I mean, so my whole life I've sort of had that kind of Oh, oh, he just said that. Yeah, I said that half an hour ago. No, 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 don't bother. Don't, you know, don't mind me. That's okay. Right. Yeah. Um, for sure. And, you know, for sure, I do think that gay rights are going to be under attack and that's going to be awful. And although, you know, the last couple of weeks, I'm feeling good. I hope everybody's feeling a little bit, <laughs> a little bit better. Things are looking a little bit better. But um, I'm always nervous, though. So. Oh, well, you know, I think the problem, the problem here actually, as, as then, is that, and as in 72, is that we have no middle. And while sometimes I find the middle right. aggravating, the middle is um, safer for more people. <laughs> and we don't, we're not having a middle. And uh, I think the whole idea that we can't sort of sit down and talk, I don't think is a necessarily always a failing. I have a hard time talking to people who just say that facts don't matter. Literally those words. Um, so yeah, I think that, the, that this whole idea of the, of the being asleep, the thing Isherwood was really talking about is, you know, how, where are you accepting and where are you trying to be understanding? And then where are you just not acting on what's right in front of you? I agree. Where are you looking um, in the mirror? You know, mm -hmm. because the MC is really, you know, I always think of him as being sort of a coyote raven, you know, Loki kind yeah. of guy, right? He's sort of a shit disturber. He's saying, look in this mirror because it's distorted. You can't really see who's in, you know, in the audience. Oh Until yeah, I think he's absolutely your trickster shapeshifter archetype. I think that's exactly what he's fulfilling. And I'm going to make this, the case that that's what led to the leading player in Pippin. Oh sure, so yeah, I hadn't thought about the that. same, only a little bit more more deliberate, right? I mean, Fosse really liked that idea. I think of him, right, mm -hmm. being yeah, stirring the pot a little bit. Yeah. And the film, he got to do do that. I mean, you know, I think he could have made, well, I don't know. Okay, yeah, so all the jazz is, is amazing and brilliant. And when I saw the movie theater at my young, tender age, when it came out, finding out that Anne Rankin was playing herself blew my mind for decades. Yeah. It's great. I mean, seriously. Yeah, I, and that Roy was not Bob Fosse. Uh, because I... You know, I mean, like I knew he wasn't, but I'm like, oh no, wait. Yeah, but he's great. I mean, I highly recommend people double feature, do what I did in college and do cabaret and all that jazz. I had, I had this to talk about in cleanup, but since we're sort of all over the place, I did want to talk about sort of how the MC's commentary works in this show, or I guess how the cabaret songs comment on the show. Because I think there's one place in the in the movie where it works better than the stage show and one place in the movie where it actually works worse than the stage show oh, um, and so the place i think it works better is in two ladies because in two ladies it's really just commenting if i'm remembering correctly it's really just commenting on 
uh, Cliff, Brian in the movie, and Sally Bowles's relationship, just the two of them. And so it's sort of comparing them living in sin with the MC and his two ladies. And I really like in the movie that it comes up during their threesome, during the threesome of Max, Brian, and Sally. And I think that works really, really, really well. It also helps the viewer not be able to say, oh, they're just good friends. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Which, you know, people will go to great lengths to do. Especially then, mm -hmm. yeah. So I think, yes, I think, I, okay. And where do you think it works? Not the as well. place I think it works not as well as maybe this time because in, so in the stage show, maybe this time happens after they've started their relationship. Yep, later. Yep, I totally and agree. In the show, yeah. it happens after she finds out she's pregnant and she's using it as justification now that she knows she's pregnant for thinking that their relationship is going to work and thinking that the yeah. baby is going to be the thing that saves them. And I find that kind of astounding because maybe this time was put back into the show after the movie. That right, the movie is after like their first big kiss and I'm going to do better than, than the other three girls who couldn't make you a man. Yeah, after their first time. Yeah, really together, yeah you get like the montage of them yeah. having yep. the rom-com thing. I agree. And there's nothing that shows you at all that she's going to stay with him. Right, yeah. It, yeah. it feels very delusional in the movie, whereas in the stage show, it feels a little more desperate. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. It's interesting to me because that's a song that I've heard so many times. Yeah. And so I knew the song. I could sing along the song with her, but then seeing it on the film, I was like, this doesn't work for me. Like seeing what it, uh, the way it was intercut. I, that was the one song that really kind of took me out a little bit. So it makes sense. Uh, yeah. And it does work much better in where, it, where they put it in the musical. I think money works really well. In the movie. Um, in the movie. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And especially because she she then kind of reprises it in in words yes. when she looks at me yeah. kind of goes money money and I'm like oh I could have yes. used more of that yeah. I actually that was <laughs> very cool I agree the thing that does work for me though and I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how it works I feel like in movie musicals the these songs that we call park and barks almost never work it is just so hard to have someone singing on a screen when we know they're probably not really singing but for some reason Liza Minnelli it like I don't know what I tried so hard to figure out what special sauce she has but she I just find her so magnetic when she's singing and so vulnerable and real and it's just like in her, all three of her songs Mine Hair maybe this time and Cabaret and I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have that problem. Like I, I guess I go for the ride myself in most or all musicals. But I, I'm just going to keep harking back to she's so young. She looks. I know. Yeah, she like looks 18. Yeah. She's, and she looks I know really she's young. not. I know she's not necessarily supposed to be. Although, and I now understand that um, Isherwood's roommate was 19. The girl that, that is correct. Yes, yeah. face is not. But um, she really looks. She just. She still has a little baby face which is probably her feature, but you know, I, that, yeah, that went a long way for me. <sighs> did Matt, did you want to talk about Max a little bit? And, or have we um, I think we actually covered the things that I wanted to say about it in, in, we kind of meandered our way through the things I wanted to say. 
I'm good. I think I have one. I wanted to talk about Cabaret, the finale, but I think I might have hit everything else that I wanted to hit. Did you have anything else, Tammy, before we talk about this last number? Nope, I did I did my list. So <laughs> what I wanted to say about Cabaret, and I've thought this for a while, but then I did spend a good amount of time thinking about it in the week leading up to this. I think this song, this finale to this show, her song is my number one musical theater song of all time. And I think you could like, I'm not gonna, if someone else has another one higher, that's totally fine. But like, I got short lists from a bunch of people. I pulled a bunch of people just to make sure there wasn't something I was forgetting. And I think this is, this is it for me. So I wanted to talk through a little bit the structure of this song and what makes it so magical to me. And so the, this song starts as your typical 32 bar song, exactly what you would expect to hear in a cabaret. It starts with her, what good is sitting alone in your room, come hear the music play. That's sort of your first A section. And then she repeats that again, put down the knitting, the book in the broom, it's time for a holiday. And at this point, I think these lyrics are just sort of like, it feel it doesn't, it's not immediately apparent how they are commenting on the story. And it continues that way through this entire 32 bar section. It has the bridge, come taste the wine, come hear the band, come blow your horn. And then her final A section, what good's permitting some prophet of doom to wipe every smile away. Life is a cabaret, old chum. So come to the cabaret. And then it does this unbelievably magical switch where normally in song structure, you would have started with an intro. And now they put what essentially is the intro to the song. It slows down to this recit and it contextualizes the entire song where she tells this story of her old friend, Elsie, who was a call girl and then she eventually dies from too much pills and liquor. And the line that is now extremely famous because Ethan Morden used it as the title of his book. But when I saw her laid out like a queen, she was the happiest corpse I'd ever seen. And then everything switches because she says, I think of Elsie to this very day. I remember how she turned to me and say, and then all of a sudden we're going to be back into the song, back into the song cabaret, but we understand that it's a song that her friend used to sing to her about enjoying life, about not letting stuff get you down. And she's going to use it as her final justification in the movie for leaving Cliff, for letting Cliff get away or for letting Brian get, a Brian get away. But in this- Michael York. Yeah. <laughs> but in the stage show, this is where she decides to get the abortion and where she, because at this oh, point she hasn't yet gotten the abortion and it musicalizes that decision so perfectly because she has the, and as for me, and as for me, I made my mind up back in Chelsea. And then by sheer brute force, there's no pivot chord. There's no nothing. She just modulates the entire song up a half step, makes the entire cabaret band come with her. 
and says, I'm going like Elsie. I am not having this baby. I'm not being tied down. I am not worrying about Brian. I'm not worrying about any of this life stuff. I am going to enjoy my life. And I think it is such an amazing surprise, such an elegant song construction that, yeah, I, I love it way, way, way too much. No, it totally works because, I mean, I, I, I think what, what you're saying in, in my problems is that, is that the verse is in the middle instead of being at the beginning because yes. it feels like a verse. The notes feel like a verse. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's cool because you're right. We get the repetition early. Mm-hmm. And because it's the last song and because even if you are like me and no longer put song lists in your program, um, sure. uh, it, it feels, I mean, I feel like you should... Mm, always say never say always or never but often you should know when the sh- when the story is coming to an end yes and it's you know these are not short stories in the new, in the new yorker right, right. <laughs> these, are, these these there should be a build and we should be you know at the dinner one you, you should sort of know so even if you yeah. don't know exactly if you're sitting in the audience things are coming to a close so yeah i and i totally agree about that no when i'm going and and there's sometimes i've heard it where they just let the actor just uh, just go to town on that on that note mm-hmm. which i usually wouldn't like but there are times when you're just like oh yeah you're gonna make it because again i think we have to kind of we have to still feel for sally or we left it intermission right and yeah. you, you do through her force of everything you have to not be thinking they're all gonna die after this even though anyone who knows history knows that's exactly what's going to happen. But you don't want that. I've seen performers cry through that number and 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 kill it. And it works, I mean, you know, as the character. Yeah. You know, just willing themselves. Because you're right, I think you just said it. You know, willing herself to hit the note, to make the choice, to stay. But it's also just so tragic because it it's the wrong decision on a million levels. Yeah. Also, because she's English, when she sings that song, it makes more sense. So sorry, it just does. <laughs> oh, you know, I hadn't thought about that. I've spent so much time thinking about it in the world of the stage show. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, it just always, always makes it. And when she's- yeah, back, uh, I, I had that thought when I was listening to. It. I was like, back in Chelsea. Hmm. And can I just say, I have a short list, different podcast. Um, no, different episode of performance performances I would have liked to have seen. Most of them are quite old, mm-hmm. but one of them is Miranda Richardson in this role. Sure, yeah. Because I adored her anyway on film, and I saw a clip. It might have been singing this song, I'm not sure. I saw a clip and just thought, oh, my God. That's when actors and singers are one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Just, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. It's all... Because she should be putting on a happy face. The problem is, is that I think when Sally is emoting through all her songs, something's wrong Mm -hmm. because she shouldn't be. Save it, you know, (laughs) save it for this number. Yep. For what it's worth for Jean Ross, the the girl that Sally Bowles was loosely based on, um, she makes it out and she joins up in the the (gasps) fight in the Spanish Civil War. The whole show's a lie. And then, and then she becomes a film critic. So, and she was, had some really important film criticism around films like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Metropolis and The Blue Angel and Battleship Potemkin. And then she became, she was writing for a major communist newspaper under the name Peter Porcupine. 
<laughs> so I don't know, just an interesting story about her as she goes on and lives her life. Um, well, so, and so, of course, she didn't really like any of the depictions because Isherwood made a fictional person based on her, but yeah. along with everyone else he met. So, yeah. you know, she's this. It's a mix of different people. It, it yeah. makes sense that she, and uh, I should say that it's not even that she didn't like Cabaret or the performance. She's just like, she was just kind of neither here nor there with it. Um, and just was like, well, I don't know. It's supposed to be me, but it's not. So. Right. Cause it's not exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So. Mary's home because it's really late. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I had to close the door. No, Mary's home because it's really late. Yeah. I'm talking forever again. As it goes. Do I, do either of you want to say anything else or should we move towards wrapping up? I'm, I'm good. I know we, yeah, I'm good too. We, this has been good. We went for a long time on this one. So. That's all right. All right. Thank you so much for listening. As always, my, uh, you can, we would love to hear your feedback. We are gearing up for our Netflix season. I don't know our release schedule yet, but if you have suggestions for movies you'd like us to cover on Netflix, we would love to get those from you. So you can find me on Twitter. I am at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to send us something not on Twitter, sort of longer form, you can email us at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. And do you have anything you want to plug, Tammy? Any, uh, any place people can reach you? No. I mean, you can always email me if you wanted to talk to me. It's Tamistoyle, T-A-M-M-I-S-D-O-Y-L-E at Gmail because I love talking about this, these subjects. And can I also just say in conclusion, I'm really happy that musicals are still being made into films. I thought Tick, Tick, Boom was fabulous and actually has some mm-hmm. uh, shows some of the same qualities that we saw in Cabaret, because I think yes. the director has studied his history and that Lynn, well, Miranda, in my opinion, made some really great choices in terms of um, intercutting scenes in that new movie musical. And also casting Joel Gray. And so also casting Joel Gray. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to be so, I happen to be directing it at the college this year. I'm so very excited about Tick Tick Boom. But I just think it's really, really cool. I know every time the movie musical is dead, it uh falls asleep for a little bit and comes back uh stronger. That's yeah, we had a good year for movie musicals last year. A Tick Tick Boom was my top one, but there was also was in the Heights last year or the year before. I think in the Heights, I don't know, I'm not sure. Um, Close. I can't remember. Yeah. In the Heights yeah. worked for me. And then there was also West Side Story. I thought there was one other one last year, but maybe not. Yep. And I thought West Side Story was was interesting, even in the things I didn't agree with. I, I loved it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but that's probably uh, probably someone's getting arrested yeah, there. Someone is. <laughs> probably, they, they thought the podcast went too long. That's a, a story for another time. We also <laughs> we also do need to thank our uh editor and beta listener david stewart so thank you so much david and i think we can just close with our closing question which is uh hopefully a fun one i had said this is my a number one top musical theater song of all time but i'm curious i don't i'm not going to ask you what your top musical song is of all time because i'm guessing you haven't thought about it for 10 hours like i am but I am curious when I say that, what's a couple songs that immediately come to your mind that you're like, I'm pretty sure this would be up there. For me, it's definitely, um, 
finishing the hat. Yeah, that's 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 it. That's my number one. It's on my short list. Is, yeah, I got it. Yeah, uh, finishing the hat is my number one. I just love that song so much, and I connect with it so much. So it's uh, and it's like clear of others for me. So that's mine, Tammy. Well, I have so many. Um, the one I usually tell people is Sunday in the Park because the end, uh, the finale, end of Act One or end of Act Two. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either way, I can, I can get into them. I just find that to be unbelievable. Um, interestingly, every day a little death. I, I mean, I could really go on sure, and on. Yeah. All of it in the woods. I, it's just crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah, probably, 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 probably Sunday. There's just something about the build and the lyric and what he says at the beginning. Did I, I, I feel like this is just like what I want in my life? Both of you have yeah. have Sunday songs. Um, yep. <laughs> I, so I will say my top Sondheim one is Moment in the Woods, because I think it is a song that distills, I think, her line, if life were only moments, even now and then a bad one, yep. but if life were only moments, then you'd never know you had one, distills wow. like a mini thesis of Sondheim's yeah, career so good. into one lyric. And it's funny because I think No More does that a little bit as well. But then so does Children of Lizard. Yeah, see, I just, you know, there's a slippery slope. <laughs> They're there. so good, yeah. I, I, there's not even a top. It's just like a thin line. So I'm falling down it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Tammy. And we'll have you back for the next one. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Matt. I will come back whenever you ask. Excellent. And you know, at some at some point, you might want to pick a movie that I don't know. Oh, that would, <laughs> that would that would be, be fine. fine. Think about it. Okay, yeah, we'll we'll brainstorm about okay. that. Maybe we'll uh, get that for next time. Excellent. Hey, thank you. All right. Of course. Bye. Thank you. This is bonus. <laughs> God damn it! I like never mess up the opening. Uh, okay. <laughs>